0: It also becomes really important in, relig- in it's really important in Catholic religious art, um, mm-hmm. where it's very very important to show off that Jesus was all man as well as all God. So there's yeah. a whole thing about Jesus's bulge as well in, in art. Um,
1: and, that should be uh, the title you, of this episode: Jesus's bulge.
0: I know you were just waiting
1: for, you, for me to say that. Hi, this is Andrew. So as some of you might know, I've been such a fan of the gay and lesbian review bi monthly magazine of history, culture and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays and movies, and a number of special features such as artist profiles and the popular art memo column. Did you know we actually had two of the writers on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcasts, Ignacio Darnad and Vernon Rosario? So if you haven't, make sure you listen to those episodes. Each GNLR issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends. Though, you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, like Grindr, which I have some experience with, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Now, for a special offer. When you subscribe to the GNLR, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven instead of six. Visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archived issues of the magazine. Enjoy your reading. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited because yet again, I am joining you all with a scholar, a queer academic, uh, someone who I knew way before I met him in person in San Francisco at the Queer History Conference. His name is Dominic James. I'm going to introduce his background because I think it's very impressive and I might have to start speaking in a royal dialect for it but he has ma's from oxford university in history and from Birkbeck in education a phd from cambridge he teaches at Kiel university a few of his publications the one that i first knew him by is called picturing the closet male secrecy and homosexual visibility in britain uh in 2015 that came out then he published Oscar Wilde prefigured Queer Fashioning and British Caricature, 2016. 2021, he came out with Freak to Chic, Gay Men in and Out of Fashion after Oscar Wilde. I'm sensing a theme here. Um, And then in 2022, what I'm here to talk about with him in depth um, is British Dandies Fashioning a Nation. And I kind of feel like I should say British Dandies, but... Regardless, I'll use my New Jersey, New York accent, uh, published in 2022. Okay, so, Dominic, thank you so much for joining me on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Mm-hmm, that's great to be here. Wonderful. We we go to practice our vowel
0: pronunciations until you get it right.
1: <laughs> I know, exactly. Well, you can be my, uh, my fair lady, uh, exactly. Henry Higgins. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well... So there's so much work that you've come out with about mm-hmm. queer fashion, queer male aesthetic. I mean, is what all of this is centering on really is a queer mm-hmm. aesthetic with men. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is this a topic that you had always been intrigued in even before, say, you went for graduate work? Were you always just interested in queer male fashion? Mm. So. Um well i've I've always thought quite
0: visually as a scholar and probably as a human being as well so um one of the things that i found rather strange when i was a student doing my i did a, a joint degree in history and classics is that in the history side of that curriculum we just looked at texts Whereas in classics, we were looking at text, we were looking at wall paintings, we were looking at pottery, we were reading plays, we were doing all sorts of diverse and interesting things. And I I always got very very frustrated by why the historians weren't doing this. Mm. And they had lots of excuses, you know, oh, well, there are other people out there, the art historians who deal with things that are visual. That's fine. But then what about things that aren't classified as art? like Mm. for example clothing it's like it wasn't there it's not sitting there on the curriculum now when when i was an undergraduate um how you dressed and how you looked was a very political thing Mm. so there was a a kind of um a thing and this is the height of the kind of the the aids crisis in in britain america where If you wanted to look non-conforming and activist and queer, and the word queer was being redeemed at this time and used at this time, Mm -hmm. there was a thing that you did, and it was very specifically buzzing your hair off. If you had hair, right, right. So you had something called a number two, which is kind of like stubble, hair stubble, like head stubble, right. And both men and women would do this. Mm. Um, And then there was a very specific kind of coat that you wore. It's kind of like a bomber jacket. Uh, and a very specific brand of jeans, and these were Levi 501s. It was a uniform, really, um, for both um, what would then referred to as queer or gay men and women. This is before kind of widespread kind of trans awareness, by the way. Um, and I remember doing this thing at university and being very aware of, you know, kind of walking around saying, look, here I am, as a kind of mode of as a mode of communication, which is not being engaged with in any way in kind of the university curriculum. And when I came to do my PhD, well, <clears throat> there was no kind of obvious funding to actually research this area, uh, and was something that did connect up with the curriculum that I've been taught was a history of religion. So I did history of religious visual culture, and then subsequently went on to explore kind of religion and queerness, and then threw into queer visual culture. So that's the route that I'd actually taken. Um, So I was thinking about all this business about signaling, how you signal a kind of political identity or a queer stance and so forth. And when I then came to read a lot of the the historiography, a lot of the queer theory, I discovered, goddammit, an awful lot of that was incredibly textual as well. And I was thinking, hang on, you know, Aren't there a lot of LGBTQ queer people in the past who didn't actually center their lives around, you know, reading the canonical texts, criticizing the midrash, all this kind of stuff, but they dressed themselves. Mm -hmm. They performed themselves. They had a kind of, you know, it differs obviously from place to place, but there were visual languages that they were used. And I kind of thought, hmm, this is a gap in the kind of scholarly landscape. Uh, and that is where i kind of plop myself in.
1: Well, and that's what I love so much when I discovered your Picturing the Closet in the Stony Brook University stacks was, yes, it's in the um, history, queer history, LGBTQ history section, but I loved your intersectional approach. Maybe it's my own love of the classics type of education and Mm -hmm. you're so right to bring up how it's the visual in ancient Greek society. It's the literature, it's the history, it's this whole mixture, the drama. Um, You have to understand not just the close reading of say, homoerotic desire in the Iliad, but you have to understand the culture and the actual what's behind, Mm -hmm. you know, the Epic. And So do you think my, and this is definitely going to be um, maybe difficult to parse out, but will definitely spur a conversation, which is, do you think backlash sounds strong, but what you were facing with coming from a classics and that intersectional approach to say a history department, was it because you were already invested or intrigued by queer desire as a discourse or was it... Just because you were doing intersectional approaches, like how much can you parse out the queerness from, you know, intersection, intersectional yes. ideas?
0: Right. Okay. So I mean, this this is really interesting. So one of one of the things there is, um, the issue of consciousness. So mm-hmm. without getting too metaphysical, right? But I'm I'm I want to go Marx and think about class consciousness, for example. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, there are a whole range of different identities. So you can be aware, self-conscious of having a class identity, or perhaps you're not. The class may still be there determining your life. right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and the, if we're thinking intersectionally, this applies to a whole range of other different things. How overtly do you think about your gender as determining, you know, your gender, your position in the gender spectrum, basically, determining who you think you are? Um, To what extent are you self-aware about race or ethnicity or religion or sexuality? Um, And I think that one of the things that happened with me is that because um, of my kind of educational upbringing, which is really, we're talking here about the early 1990s, it was a period when people had become really quite, they'd become really very kind of self-aware about sexuality as an issue of identity. Um, in Britain at that time, it was it was tied quite heavily into class. It was much less heavily tied into race at, at that time, but in a conscious way. It doesn't mean that it wasn't there, right, um, but consciously speaking. Um, and so when i came to to thinking about these things and studying about these things i was kind of really i really got very interested in first of all the question of what is displayed and what is not displayed um, and then also what is someone what are people aware of and they're not aware of so that you actually get it's quite interesting in terms of it's a little bit like taking an approach to close reading to a literary text in other words, there's the surface meaning of the words, but there might be also sort the of like implications to those sets of words. So this is not, a, it is not a semiotic approach. It's not a basically saying, you know, this is a pipe or this is not a pipe in relation to interpreting things. Um, it's not a postmodern, nothing really refers to anything in particular. It's actually saying that people are communicating all the time, they're sending out lots and lots of different signals, some of which, um, I suppose it's kind of Freudian uh, in a way, some of which are kind of consciously engaged with, some of which are perhaps not so consciously engaged with. But this is a form of language that's actually taking place. Um, and it's very interesting when you're talking about the issue of um, intersectionality, because one of the things that I subsequently discovered about myself is that I have mixed race ancestry. Mm. Now, I didn't actually know this at the time when I was a student, um, but there have been some odd occasions when people had kind of intimated um, that there was something queer in the sense of decentered about me,
2: mm.
0: peripheral, unusual. Um, And most of the time, that was something to do with the gender sexuality innuendos, but not always. And I'm just going to tell you a little story here. This is from slightly later in my career. And it always sounds very patronizing when you talk about being a junior academic or even worse, something called a young historian, which is just anyway whatever. So I was in the earlier part of my career. And I was giving a seminar. This is before, by the way, I I had any idea that I had some mixed race, West African ancestry. Um, I've been giving a seminar um, at University X. And um, after dinner afterwards, there was someone there who was the the wife of the presiding professor. Mm. And everyone has had a couple of glasses of wine. And she leans across the table towards me. Uh, and she says, uh, I, right, okay, it's almost like trigger warning here, okay? you mm-hmm. um, she, she didn't say trigger warning, right? I'm saying trigger warning. She yes. basically leaned across the table and said, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but did your mother have a bit of an encounter with the tar brush? Now, I don't know whether that reads and communicates to an American audience, but in case it doesn't let me spell it out <clears throat> the tar and feathering someone was a conventional way uh, in the past of humiliating them what you do is you paint them with black tar and cover them with feathers so having an encounter with the tar brush implies you've got some black ancestry yeah and it would like, be like that is extraordinary yeah. well a it's an stunningly racist thing to say yes yes, right but secondarily um, it's also extraordinary in that she could see something
3: that I couldn't see myself. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and 6-1-since-that-matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, And also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory. Because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Isn't that fascinating, right?
0: And that yeah. that then leads me to kind of, to think about another aspect of all of this, which is um, who picks up on what?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But this is another really kind of really important point about a lot of my work is that some more, shall we say, <clears throat> stylistically non-queer historians, right? have a habit of thinking that texts have an overt meaning and everyone who is sane reads them in the same way. Mm. Whereas what I think is that actually things do not have an absolutely fixed meaning and the way that they are read varies enormously depending on who's actually looking and who's reading. And hence, you can actually have a situation where um, some of the signaling that queer people did in the past Is basically directed at other queer people Mm. so it's not a question of being flagrant or passing it's a question of being flagrant to who who do you want to communicate with and who do you want to not detect what is actually going on so i suppose just to kind of go back to where you're coming from my own background was more or less tolerant or intolerant of different forms of intersectionality and I was more or less consciously or unconsciously trying to navigate my way through that.
1: Yeah, with now, when you find out about your mixed race ancestry, then you have yeah. that as one identity, Um. well, multiplicity of racial identity, actually, and then you have mm-hmm. your sexuality, your, you know, I don't know yeah. if you identify as gay, but you know, being queer with desire. Um, Uh So just for everyone out there, that's what intersectionality is. Really what Dominic just explained is all these identities, just blend. trying to figure out how that all fits together with being Uh read. And I think being read is so interesting. Like that woman read you. I mean, I would think she she probably read herself or who knows where that's stemming from, psycho- analytically, but um, Mm -hmm. there is obviously a shame that she's trying to place or out you in a certain way. How interesting that that's exactly what you describe in all of your work, which is how fashion or how a presentation of sexuality, how that's being read by different audiences, just like a literary text So I Mm -hmm. love what you've done there with that metaphor. It's powerful. And, um, right, is why we, like I can say for myself, being gay, there's a whole genealogy of queer literature that certain touchstones, certain movies, certain music that we can kind of all trace as this genealogy of queer media. So Mm -hmm. I think... What's so intriguing, though, is what you bring up about class. And I don't want to let it go because it is such a, in my opinion, British. Um, It's in America, too, of course. I think we have a hidden or we think that class is not centering in our lives, but it really is Um, just mm-hmm. not talked about in the same way. Mm-hmm. But do you feel from all of your research? I mean, Dominic, you go from the 1700s to the 21st century in British Dandies. Well, to the late 20th, but still, you end Mm us thinking about modern day. That is not an easy feat. And I'm really curious about with class, like how has thinking about queer male presentation and class, you know, how yep. have you worked through that? Because that's a that lot is, of history yeah. to cover.
0: Right. Yeah. So there's
1: a there's a two, there's a couple of things there. So the first one that you're
0: talking about, I would say <clears throat> is to think about the notion of consciousness. This mm-hmm. is going back to what I was saying about, about class consciousness. So when you say uh, you know, when when you say, for example, when people say, well, Britain is a very class-based society, what you might mean, well, as a sociologist, you might be able to say that, but I'm not a sociologist. So you know, as a kind of as a cultural historian, what I'm interested in is uh, that people think that it's a class-based society. What does that do? So, in other words, this is a society where people have class consciousness, that unclass self-consciousness. Right? Um, whereas you can argue, and these are very broad generalizations, that in America, for example, there is stronger race ethnicity consciousness than there is in the uk and weaker class consciousness doesn't mean that there isn't plenty of race realities going on in both places or plenty of class realities going on in both cases but this is kind of like you know if i, if I focus on the kind of the the consciousness kind of issue um and um one of the then the other issue was how does this relate to some of my other interests right in terms of style and so forth. So, one of the ways in which in class conscious British society dandies um, allegedly over fashionable men of sometimes queer sexuality, but not always, have been criticized is because of their alleged um, infractions of the class system. Mm. So, in other words, what you're basically doing with clothes, if you're really good with clothes, is you're doing some power play. Mm. And you're basically saying, actually, look at me, I'm a visible person of significance. Da-da, and I'm doing the clothes. Or I'm doing it with deportment or, I mean, dandyism, I mean, I, I, I think of myself, I, in some ways I am a dandy, but I'm less a dandy with clothes, I'm more a dandy with words. Mm. Because I genuinely think I am good with words and I like showing it off, right? This is dandyism. Mm. Um, and my sort of attitude is well, if you're good at something, why the hell shouldn't you be able to show it off? I mean, it's, have a think about it. You know, if you are a, an outstanding footballer, mm. you're not accused of being a show off. People say, oh, wow, isn't that amazing what great sporting talent you have? How is it that there are certain forms of, you know, ability, like being able to play with words or, you know, play with lapels, which somehow that gets people's backs up? Why? Now, sometimes, of course, you're going to be a queer activist. That's exactly what you want to do. I mean, you know, you want to get people's backs up. You want to rile them. You want to question things and so forth. But what it's basically saying is that this thing that's labelled dandyism is, in some ways, subversive of something
2: Mm.
0: and in the past in britain what it was potentially subversive of was class position particularly because you know if you go back to the 18th century for example i mean the basic idea is that only the upper classes could do fashion other people had clothes and rags if they're poor right but Uh, You know, everyone had to have clothes in some shape or form, but only the rich could do fashion, because it's exclusive. And then what you actually find happening from the 18th century onwards is that you get a, a bit of meritocracy creeping in. You actually, first of all, from people who are kind of more middle class incomes, but as you go into the 19th century and the 20th century, people on working class incomes start to be able to do really good things with clothes because clothes actually get cheaper for all sorts of you know so do with the industrial revolution and all this kind of stuff and that actually that creates a bit of bit of a visual problem because actually you can have people from somewhere down the social spectrum looking more impressive than the people at the top Um, And so this creates a kind of disturbance in the force, right? And there are very powerful attempts in Britain to try to counteract this. So a couple of responses that you get is as follows. Um, Individualism in clothing is suspect. If you wanna be received successfully at the top of ranks of society, what you basically is adopt a kind of uniform rather than fashion if you're men. Um, And that actually literally just showing off your individuality in clothes becomes a sign of femininity. Mm. And therefore, that's downclassing it in gender terms in this kind of misogynist society. So that is one of the reasons why, for example, members of the british royal family if they're men very regularly on public duties are walking around in military and naval outfits you might think this is rather bizarre but that's what they do and it's about showing uniforms it's basically saying well i'm not here looking fabulously dressed i'm just simply wearing the uniform of a service Mm. so um So dandies are people who can potentially play around and disrupt with some of those boundaries. One of the interesting questions, um, it's like a seminar question, can women be dandies? And there are articles about this. And the answer is yes. But customarily, um, dandyism has been a kind of discourse that that is focused on men. And that is because for the reason I was describing there, men in the past have been the ones primarily contesting power and what is problematic is men using clothes to kind of impersonate supposedly people of higher social rank so what this basically boils down to in queer terms is performativity Mm -hmm. so in other words dandies are people who are doing a kind of drag they are if you like They're not men who are female impersonators, they're men who are male impersonators. It is a self-conscious performance of a certain form of masculinity, which if you're not careful, or if you are careful, could be read as satirizing the whole damn business.
1: Well, I love that you got us there, Dominic, because that as you're talking about this i'm thinking well there are ways that we we all have to decide our outfits we i mean some are like you're saying it's about consciousness it's about performativity in ways i mean when i'm this is the now sensual part of the interview maybe this will be our steamy erotic aspect but even when i go to the gym now you know i realize okay do i want to put on for my spinning or cycle class, or when I do squats, oh, okay, here's my short shorts that really, I mean, I don't know if it's, I think it's happening um, with men, young men all over the globe. But here in America, there's now this, probably because of social media and TikTok, We have all of these videos, but I see it where men now we want to show off our butts and it's becoming hearts. It's not necessarily about um, queer men. It's now men showing what they have. But that's something Uh that fascinates me, though, is like when in the history do you start to see, I think for the audience here. It wasn't always, though, that, like you're describing in your history with dandyism, that didn't necessarily mean sensuality. Like, it didn't mean, okay, I'm going to show off, the man's oh. going to show his bulge off or his butt. Like, I think it, you know, what have you seen about male fashion and outfits mm. and oh, okay. eroticism? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay.
2: LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The g believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GLR also publishes articles on its blog, as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GLR, visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G, and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have questions, email me at stephen.hemrick at georeview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say.
0: So one okay. So one really important question here is about the body, mm. um, and so that's one of the interesting things about clothes is that they're often thought of as weirdly kind of separate from bodies, mm. but they're not. I mean, a clothes clothes are like a symbiote to you know a human being, right? They're not these separate entities. I mean, that's the reason why you know you can. If you want to get into the surrealism you know the pair of gloves lying on a table is uncanny because actually where's the body right it's this so so one of the very interesting questions in the history of fashion is where's the body the male body the female body um because clothes can they can accentuate they can conceal they can shape they can highlight it's all sorts of interesting things that clothes can do. Um, and one of, the, one of the other interesting things here is the evolution of fashionable body shapes. And you can talk about this for women as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also talk about it for men. And also the, um, the history of fascination with muscles and then the question of which muscles so that in the 18th century, for example, the really hot, hot thing to have is big bulging calf muscles. And that's basically because people wore silk stockings. So the bit of their clothing that was skin tight, where you could immediately see muscle, was calves. You couldn't see it on the rest of their bodies. So therefore, the calves become an object of kind of fascination. And for example, in erotic terms, uh, what were called chairmen, chairman, not chairman of a company, a chairman was someone who carried uh, a litter. So, in other words, like a box thing with handles where one guy stands on the front, one guy stands in the middle, and you ride around in this little box that is carried around. Anyway, they're called chairmen. And for fairly obvious reasons, they got massive um, calf muscles. And they were an object of great fascination and fetishization in the 18th century. Now, what, where would my consciousness of these matters come from? So um, again, if we go back to the cultural politics of the of the early um, 1990s, one of the things that was going on there was fear of, well, obviously fear of AIDS, but also fear of bodily wasting as mm. a, an aspect of HIV AIDS. And so there was a counter reaction which was very much around the fetishizing, I think fetishizing is a reasonable word for it, of muscle, very specific forms of muscle for men, um, particularly pecs and big arms. People weren't very interested in legs. They weren't very interested because the legs were hidden inside the 501, so you had no idea. Um, but in terms of the outfit, what you're supposed to do is have a bomber jacket. You take the bomber jacket off, you might have a tight white t-shirt. Therefore, you can see the pecs, you can see the arms. Um, so, in that particular point in history, um, there was sort of awareness of very specific kind of bits of bits of body shape. Um, and I think I was—I think it is perfectly fair to say that I was a um, well, I was a slim teenager, right? Okay. Um, but in terms of the cultural politics of the time, I interpreted myself as a scrawny teenager. Acker, not attractive and so you then have kind of interesting issues about what you what you do with that so some people who were that kind of you know shape and style at that point went off into for example goth culture you know the post punk goth culture and there you know your business is to be super pale and super skinny and super unhealthy looking the problem with well, the problem with that is that at the time that was, that was in sexuality terms, kind of positioned as a very heterosexual thing to do, not as a very gay thing to do at all. Um, and so I guess, you know, one way to actually think about um, sex sexuality is again, to think rather like, uh, when I was talking about, you know, class consciousness um, and gender consciousness and so forth, um, lot of those things are based on really broad categorizations you know black and white the world is not black and white so there's a lot more awareness of the big blocks of categorization than there is than the blurred nature even the term as you said the term mixed race is a sort of what do you do with that it's kind of it describes everything and nothing right Um, whereas when you actually start thinking about your one's own sexuality it actually starts to become a lot more complex and nuanced than just simply these big categories of gay or straight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, just going into all other kinds of issues, there are different sexual preferences. There's the issue of, you know, are you into fucking? Are you a top, are you a bottom? What do you identify with? Does that change during your lifetime? Um, Do you identify? I mean, there's there's all sorts of complexities Mm -hmm. that actually go on here. And so what I would say with the way that that connects up with dandyism is that eroticism is a, there's power in it, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you have to, or you can always deploy eroticism in a dandy strategy, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's actually rather useful. Now I'll give an example of this. And this is, again, I would really emphasize, this is not conventionally how it's studied. Mm -hmm. Um, the quintessential british dandy of the early 19th century was called beau brummel and he pioneered a a kind of buttoned down toned down very precise but in a way quite plain style of dressing where it's very much about getting it precisely fitting as opposed to being very elaborate and conventionally, pe- people have basically said, oh, Bo Brommel, you know, he's a yeah, yeah. basically it's nothing to do with sex.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because, well, he didn't get married and he didn't have any children. <laughs> and there's no evidence of him chasing whores around the town. So therefore he's a strained, cold entity and it's therefore nothing to do with sexuality. Hmm, have a think about this for a moment. Think about asexuality, which is a sexuality. Think about queer, closeted queer sexuality. Um, Think about, in that kind of time, not chasing female whores around the town. Kind of a queer thing for a man of that generation to be doing. Oh, there's plenty of sexuality floating around in there. Um, So the different forms of dandyism, some of them are much more about radiating an overt sexuality. And some of them are actually kind of intriguing by
1: being kind of, how can I put this, intriguingly buttoned up. Yeah. So, like, is this an example? This is from British Dandies, which would be, we have, I think, is it John Shoot Dominic?
0: Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Yes. yes.
1: Yeah. I'll put it in our um, social media, in our uh, Instagram, Twitter, um yeah but if you have Dominic's book there's such just beautiful visual representations because that's what Dominic does with the history um and I love like it's everything you've described this the way the outfit is so fitted around his body and the jacket is fitted it's um elegant it's like an elegant dandyism uh but, like, what
0: it's would also, that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, I was also going to say it's also very layered because yes. what, what, we're, what we're talking about here is a quite a plain, although rather gorgeously colored um, coat, and then a very elaborately gold employed, embroidered waistcoat underneath. Yes, um, and which, which, then, of course, you know, if you get to see the picture of it, um, it's the way that the waistcoat works and these are much, much longer, by the way, than 20th century waistcoats, Um, Mm -hmm. is that in fact, you know, it kind of sort of splits open where the crotch actually is. So you have on the effect of it on the one hand is to create a sense of kind of carapace of these layers of defense. But on the other hand, it also kind of implies a kind of ability of these these layers, these carapaces to kind of split open to reveal
1: what there is to reveal. The gems, yeah, uh, gems. but, yes, yes, exactly. Well, it's kind of exactly what the um Benjamin Franklin or a lot of the founding fathers were trying to replicate this type of elegancy with their waistcoats and so much involved with that fashion. But, like, let's go into one where it really does, and you take us there in British dandies, mm-hmm. which is, where the bulge is amplified? Like, where do we really start to see that in the aristocracy? Because it becomes the fashion to do with men is to draw mm-hmm. attention to the yes. royal gems.
0: Right, okay. So um, so this, it's also, again, it's quite interesting, this issue of, of kind of, you know, bulges and sexuality because of obviously there are a range of different bulges. I mean, in the case of people who identify as women, breasts, mm-hmm. uh, also pecs, um, yes. then crotch bulges or muscles that can bulge. There's something kind of clefts and bulges, right? Okay. Some of the kind of the themes, right, of these kind of the erotic landscape. Um, so um, crotch crotch world. Okay. So there's there's a whole thing which I don't get into because it's before the start of the book which is all about, you know, the world of the codpiece. And codpieces, if you forgive it the pun, very big in the 16th century. And so there's a certain sense in which just literally showing off your packet becomes very, very important for men at that stage. Interestingly, by the way, um, it also becomes really important in religion. It's really important in Catholic religious art. Um, where it's very, very important to show off that Jesus was all man as well as all God.
1: So there's wow. a
0: whole thing about Jesus's bulge as well in, in art. Um, and, that should be uh, the title
1: you... of this episode, Jesus's bulge.
0: I know you were just waiting for, you, for me to say that. Um, so, Which is also very interesting, by the way, because the classical tradition uh, really emphasizes very, very small penises. Is not in fact very mm-hmm. bulge focused, right? So bulging is something that is very big in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Um, it then um, now it's really interesting. It, I think I think I, in effect I think the the bulge was very big in the Regency period. This is Beau Brummel's period, right? Yes. Um, but interesting enough, it's not. Hmm, it's not. It's not described, it doesn't appear in art particularly. It's not a major focus. Mm -hmm. But the reason why it's there is basically because people used to wear at that point pretty much skin tight, sort of trouser leggings, basically. And that Mm -hmm. was the look, basically. And it's not just that, jackets Mm -hmm. and waistcoats in the Regency were cut very high unlike in the 18th century with the very low, <clears throat> So they basically finish so that the whole crotch area is on full view. Now, I mean, I think the reality is whatever you've got to show, it's going to be showing in that, at, at that point. Um, it's unlike, however, what happens in the 16th century. This is not actually depicted in the art at the time. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of seeing and not seeing going on in relation to the bulge right um and you have a kind of and it's very interesting that kind of you then move through the 19th century um where trousers are then kind of when trousers actually come in rather these kind of breeches basically um one of the i think one of the reasons for the trousers coming in is actually to disguise the bulge or to discipline the bulge, right? Discipline the bulge. So that, discipline, exactly. And so the so someone who's a really good tailor, their job is to deal with the problem of the male bulge. They have to mm. accommodate it in an elegant way, right? Um, and then so when does when does the kind of the bulge, the kind of overt bulge kind of reappear? Um, it really starts reappearing its bathing costumes.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: And you really start seeing it in the interwar period again. Shorts start to come in, uh, and bathing costumes that actually kind of are kind of fitting. At which point you're going to see stuff, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, and so there's, as you
0: go, yeah. And as you go through to the through go through the 20th century, um, this becomes well, it's a an open secret that a big part of the excitement of jeans culture was that they were actually designed to kind of show off what you've got um, because they're not disguising it with pleats and all this kind of stuff so I remember one of the things that people used to do uh again around the early 90s was you would you would distress your own jeans you don't buy the pre I mean back no, it's pre-distressed ones but what people would do is they would get some kind of like I don't know what they used, some kind of he- wire hair brush or something or other. And they would have a good old go at the crotch of their jeans to kind of to kind of create a kind of, the kind of effect that the whole thing had been put under great pressure for a while. Wow. So well, you thank have you all of for these... this history. Exactly. So you have all of these fun things that you can discover um, about, um, about bulges. Uh, just as one aspect. Well,
1: I feel like your next book should be The History of the Bulge, Dominic. That could be quite intriguing.
3: Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E made it. Or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M A N D E E, and ordered today.
1: Uh, but I mean, there is the book. I'm not sure if you've read it, but have you ever read the History of the Penis? I think that's what it's called.
0: Yes, yes, yes. There are a number of there are a number of um, penis. There's a I mean, there's a classic. There's a classic coffee table book which is just called the Big Penis Book.
1: Oh, okay. Exactly. Yes. That's yes. Well, another, that one is a fine document. Yes. That one is uh, uncensored fully. Oh, A Mind of Its Own, A Cultural History of the Penis by David Friedman. There you go. Shout out to David Friedman. I mean, but it has yeah. what you're talking about, that 1500s, the 16th century pod, yeah. pod piece, right? Okay. But so, um, what I love okay. is, and I will show Again, all of these images that Dominic is describing, we'll have on our ivory tower boiler room Instagram. But, um, and I'll try to put some on Twitter for all you academics on Twitter out there. But I love the one about boxing. It's kind of what you're describing here is there's there's a certain regency into the Victorian, into even when you talk about bathing suits in our 20th century. And what's happening now, I think is even more revealing is athleticism and the male body, how Uh like queer men start adopting, they start adopting this type of athletic performance when it comes to their fashion, their dress, enhancing their package, even their butt. So why do you think athleticism, not athleticism, but why is it sports attire, um, is it taking us back to say ancient greece and what we oh. saw with the gymnasia like why athletic culture and the queer male body right.
0: okay well i mean obviously the the first thing to say about ancient greece is that you know i mean athletic was done naked mm-hmm. so you know your this goes but this goes back to the fact that you wear your um bodies and clothes are these interchangeable things that kind of relate to each other and so forth um and i think one thing actually by the way which is really interesting about that is um the the phenomenon of um statues ancient statues so there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about um marble statues in antiquity uh and this has been discussed in terms of um Racism. This is the idea of white marble. Um, and and certainly true that in the in the nineteenth in the eighteenth, nineteenth centuries, that a lot of a lot of queer men would go along to the sculpture galleries of somewhere like the British Museum, uh, and they would stand in um, aesthetic contemplation of Greek statuary of naked men performing sport or whatever else it might be. And if you happen to notice that there was someone else standing there similarly fascinated with antiquities, you might perhaps strike up a conversation and, in fact, lead to a pickup. So there's a kind of sort of root of connection. Right. This is politely referred to as the classical tradition rather than the history of cruising. But nevertheless, right? they all. It is. It's like queer together.
1: cruising, queer male cruising in the British Museum.
0: Yeah, of course yes, fascinating exactly. <laughs> that's right um so so one of the interesting one of the interesting things what i always think is was quite interesting about queering queering sport or queering all sorts of other things like the army uh, mm. or the navy or something other like that um is that, you know, again, if we've got to use these very broad braced categories, the straight explanation, and I know that's very reductionist, and you know, I don't like the term, but anyway, you know what I mean, the non-queer, whatever we're going to call the non-queer. Um, the non-queer would basically say, you know, the sexuality is entirely incidental. Mm. You know, all those guys, you know, all those guys who love marching along in leather behind Mussolini, nothing to do with sexuality, no, 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 you know, um that you know they're not getting a hard on from doing that no 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 no. not not interested not interested whereas i mean the point one of the point is about the kind of the queer the queer engagement but this is actually saying well he's like it's like race it's kind of floats all the way through the human population sexuality does exactly the same thing it's not something that just happens when you know you've had a hard day and you want a little bit of relief you know before you go to sleep it's just always there right so mm. it's there in the army it's there in the navy it's there in the sports clubs even if supposedly that's a whole bunch of straight guys it's still there yeah and that's one of the things i think that where queer where queer people can get involved with that is to kind of be they can be aware of it they can mm-hmm. play around with it um and i think one of the bi- and this is actually something i'm working on at the moment i think one of the big unspoken things is you know i i, I think i think i think queer i think so-called straight people quite often do the queer gaze as well mm. i think straight men are each other up not all of them but quite a few of them do it's got a lot of them are aware of each other's attractiveness they may not identify queer or want to do anything about it, but they're aware of it.
1: Right? Well, and they're playing it up for each other at the gym. And when they're competing. playing it up for each other. Yes. Exactly. Yes. That's right. But the, the point is that if you
0: if you do identify as queer, you are given license to notice this and overtly think, what can I do about this?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, because and subvert
1: open, the fashion yeah you can, you can subver-
0: absolutely you can and you can subvert it or you can play with it. so i mean uh, a really interesting example of that is tom daly you know the british diver
1: ah, um, yes yes
0: yeah so um, and very obviously the thing that was not supposedly sexual about him was his body because why does he have a great body because he trains so hard to be a diver That's the official explanation. Um, And so, you know, what does he then do? He spends a lot of his time knitting and creating these big kind of, we have something in Britain called a tea cozy, which is a knitted kind of sack-like thing Mm. that goes over a teapot to cover it up. So he actually then creates these big kind of baggy fabric-like things, the main purpose of which is actually cover up bodies, which if you think about it's like a huge camp queer joke about the whole thing. So he's busily doing that stuff um, and he's able to do so. And it's just great.
1: Yeah. But I love how you're saying there's this performing, who's in on it. And yes, that straight men, bi men, queer men, um, gay men, there is an awareness that's happening now with fashion. And Mm -hmm. would you say like, as we're, you know, leading to, to the end of the discussion, which I could keep going with you, Dominic. There's so much, but that's why everyone needs to get their hands on British Dandies. link in my show notes for the episode, because there's so much that you cover with the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. I find it so fascinating. Where we are now, though, like how do you reflect on, you said you're working on something new, so you'll have to tease us with that at the end, but Where do you think we are now with, is it a more, is it more open of, I mean, you said that men are in on it. Some men are in on how the body is um, being eroticized with their own fashion. Um, Do you think that there is a more openness around how queer male visual, how queer, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it, but queer male fashion that we're at a point now where um, there's just playfulness going on with the male body and fashion that are we beyond queer male fashion or are queer men, you know, are queer men still able to hold on to certain fashion that is, Something they recognize, but wouldn't necessarily be recognized by, say, the straight community. Mm -hmm. Do we still, are we still in on our own uh, visual culture? Okay, so what is it like for? queer men to dress now what is their fashion standards like what is happening with straight men and their tiktok challenges where they're sizing each other's butts up and wearing three inch shorts which i thought i was cutting edge wearing my three inch shorts my speedos fashion speedos on fire island no now the straight men are taking that aesthetic uh i'm joking to all the straight men out there i love you um but dominic gets into all that about what is happening with straight men and queer men and their fashion starting to align with each other what's this aesthetic being built here um is it allyship in a way so dominic gets into this in a bonus episode it is at least another 10 minutes. I think it's a little more than that, actually. It is on our Patreon. You join for $5 a month. You're going to get access not only to Dominic's bonus episode, but all our bonus episodes, which almost every episode now that you're all hearing for free has an bonus of extra content. So here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, here with True Crime and Academia, that Mary hosts. So if you're not... a member there you're missing out five dollars a month patreon.com slash ivory tower boil the room dominic james gives us hot takes on queer male fashion nowadays in 2023 what's happened to cruising with apps like grinder and scruff also he's working on a new book about queer students and their experience in england so there's a lot that um he talks about teasing what's to come with his next work. And you know I'll have him back on when his book's out. Okay, shout out to Dominic, loved having you on the podcast. He always gives his hot takes, gives his scholarly expertise, his queer male aesthetic is coming through and I love joking with him on this podcast. So see you all in the Patreon. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face, and you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the pink triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel, and a dystopia novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein? So head to patreon.com slash room. Please, please... Provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia.
3: Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 7.30. Now, to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime in Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like... I do a deep dive on the case of Jean-Benet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, really great.
1: It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone.